Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. This was election week for Canadians, a chance for voters to render judgment on four years under Justin Trudeau's Liberal government, which had been riding high in the polls until being laid low by a series of scandals over the last year. In Monday's election, the Liberals narrowly lost the popular vote to Andrew Scheer's opposition Conservatives. But thanks to the structure of Canada's parliamentary system, Trudeau's Liberals were able to squeak out a victory, though their former strong majority position was reduced to a minority government. And Trudeau now will have to rely on support from smaller parties, such as the left-of-centre New Democratic Party and the separatist Bloc Québécois. Joining me to discuss the election result is veteran Canadian pundit David Frum, Having been based in Washington over the last two decades, he's become best known primarily for his American political commentary. But as his old Canadian friends and colleagues can attest, he still maintains a keen interest in Canadian affairs, in part through his sister Linda Frum, a conservative Canadian senator. On Thursday, I spoke to David by phone. Here are excerpts from that conversation, which began on the subject of the Canadian election, but then ranged widely over all sorts of issues connected to politics on both sides of the border. Five years ago, when it was revealed that I was working as an editorial assistant for Justin Trudeau, I remember we had a phone call and you asked me some hard questions about that. Lots of water has gone under the bridge since then. What has been your opinion of Justin Trudeau? Do you think he deserved a second mandate? I think Justin Trudeau ran a reasonably successful government very expensive, excessive deficits, but he ran a reasonably successful government under the face of an extraordinary challenge, which is the Trump presidency in the United States. Canada has never had to face so hostile an American government, not since the days when in, uh, American invasion was a real possibility. But that, I was always offset by Justin Trudeau's personal defects as a leader and the preening, the show-offery, um, and, and the dishonesty. He earned every drop of his six and a half point drop of the popular vote. Let me give you an example, and it's, it's one that's close to my heart because, as you know, my sister serves in the Canadian Senate. The Canadian Senate is a very troubled institution. Um, it fits very oddly into a modern democratic government, and everybody agrees it should be reformed. No one can agree how, and because no one can agree how, there it stays. Justin Trudeau's solution was to appoint a whole bunch of liberal senators and refuse to acknowledge that they are liberal senators and insist that indeed these senators who were chosen for partisan reasons, who voted in a partisan way, were nonpartisan. What's the point of that? Um, we all understand the Senate can't be fixed. The power, prime minister has the power to choose liberal senators. Stephen Harper unwisely left seats open. That was on him, not on you. Use the power. That, that's what anybody else would do. But don't use the power and say you're not using it. And don't get huffy when other people point out the obvious truth that you're pointing partisan liberal senators to vote in partisan ways. And just to update our listeners, as you suggest, the Canadian Senate is a sort of odd duck. To some extent, it's similar to the British House of Lords. It's more or less a life appointment. And it's not taken as seriously by some as a legislative body because of some of the defects you're pointing to. Exactly. 
And Stephen Harper tried to fix it, failed, as everyone who was trying to fix it failed. Justin Trudeau lived with it, but what he what he did, the best of him was he recognized it as as a problem that was too difficult to fix. Focus on other priorities. That's pragmatic. That that's that that's reasonable government. But he then joined his pragmatic approach to the problem to this vain, self congratulatory, and false claim that that his solution was to make the Senate nonpartisan. They just happened all to be liberal people. Well, pe- people who are close to the Liberal Party who voted in liberal ways. You describe his approach as somewhat vain and self-congratulatory, those words you just used. Do you think that that is an aspect of all successful politicians in this age? Uh, Certainly Donald Trump is vain and self-congratulatory. And on the other side of the political spectrum, you have a lot of Democrats who, in Congress certainly, some newly elected people, despite some very modest achievements, often seem on social media to be very vain and self-congratulatory. How much of what has been critiqued in regard to Trudeau is simply the reality of the shallowness of modern politics in the social media age. Zero. And, they, and I, let's, let's define what successful means. It doesn't mean getting elected. The, Sam Rayburn, the greatest of American uh, speakers of the House of our time, famously had a rule he would never speak, even speak to a freshman member of Congress uh, because, said Sam Rayburn, the American people will elect anybody to anything once. Uh, the test of success is re-election. The test of success is delivering, using the power that you're given to actually deliver results. Donald Trump has been a strikingly unsuccessful president from any point of view other than his own personal corruption. And he, I am quite confident, will be he and his party will be severely punished for that in 2020. These social media uh, Congress people you mentioned, I think we have to distinguish some. I mean, one, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is actually quite a successful member of Congress, that she's distinguishing herself by effective questioning the congressional committees. And she's doing a lot less of the social media preening. Ilan Omar, I don't think has a future. Um, and I think the social media media preening is, is a reason. In defense of Justin Trudeau, some of the fears about him seem to have been falsified. In the 2015 election, there were a lot of fears from conservatives and especially Jewish voters that he would become a voice against Israel on the international stage. That didn't really happen. Uh, Has it been acknowledged that some of the fears about him being very much a a left-wing presence on the international stage in the mold of his father, that those have not come to pass? That's partly true and partly not true. It it is true that he drew back from some of the anti-Israel messaging that you saw in his campaign. And what that reflected... Um, good qualities inherent in him or reflected a pragmatic reading of realities, I, I can't say, but he did do that and credit to him for that. But on the international stage, I, I think he he did. He did preen in ways that were very da- damaging. For example, as I said, he had he was handed this terrible problem of the Trump presidency. How, how does Canada cope with such a malign force next door in such a powerful country with which Canada has such a close economic relationship? So what, one of the things that um, Trump did that offended progressive sensibilities all around the world, and, and rightly, was his so-called Muslim ban. Uh, and he did various iterations, but the very first weekend, I think, after he became president, he tried to put in place a ban on people of Islamic background or faith or last name or whatever it was. No one knew the plan. Tried to put that, in, and that horrified people. Understand it. Justin Trudeau famously tweeted, reacted to that by tweeting, Canada welcomes all people fleeing persecution. Now, that was just posing. Uh, that was just possible. I was just there's a Canadian children's show called Mr. Dress Up. That was him playing Mr. Dress Up. 
What he did not anticipate was that tens of thousands of people would take him at his word. Uh, tens of thousands of hard-pressed people, especially um, illegal immigrants living in American cities without papers, would say, huh, Canada welcomes us. And they began showing up. And they began showing up in very large numbers. In the summer, I wrote about this in The Atlantic, in the summer of 2017, uh, at a rate of 250 people a day, which is, given the capacities of the Canadian state, quite a lot for Canada. And they kept coming. The numbers rose even higher in 2018. That ignited a nationalist reaction in Quebec, predictably ignited a nationalist reaction in Quebec that elected a nationalist government that passed various kinds of oppressive laws and revived the Bloc Québécois, the national, the federal version of the um, uh, Quebec Nationalist Party, which is one of the reasons that he lost his majority. There were refugees and refugee advocates who, who more or less read Justin Trudeau's tweet back to reporters when asked why these people were coming. Right. It was an example of words having meaning on the international stage. Right. Words had meaning in terms of his own feelings, certain internal party constituencies that he thought about, and he, he disconnected them uh, from others. I think that, that was one of the stories about the, the blackface. I don't think that anybody thinks of Justin Trudeau as any kind of bigot. What the blackface incidents, multiple incidents showed, was self-involvement, self-regard, an inability to form the connection between what was fun for him and its impact on other people. Let's talk a little bit about the nature of political campaigns and what is seen as permissible and non-permissible. The blackface incidents, they were seen in a kind of ambiguous way in Canada. I think a lot of people seized on them and there was a lurid interest in them and Trudeau rightly apologized for it. But there was also this sense, and not just in left-wing circles, that this is too personal, it made people a little bit uncomfortable. This is not something that would have happened in the United States. In the United States, uh, you know, people would have been going on for months about it. Is there a difference between how much Canadians and Americans, and I know you're a student of both political cultures, how much personal stuff they're willing to countenance in a campaign? Canada has a very gentle media. There was a big protest in front of Parliament, um, a group of Native leaders, pitched a tent in front of Parliament on a very cold winter month and told everybody that they were going to be sleeping in the tent inside, uh, in front of Parliament. And every reporter covering it knew that actually what they were doing was waiting until the end of the day and then checking into the Chateau Laurier next door and, and spending the night there and then coming out early in the morning and returning to the tents as their protest. That, that appeared nowhere. That appeared nowhere because, because part, partly for ideological reasons, but partly, as you said, the Canadian press is, is gentle. I mean, certainly... A politician whose marriage is in trouble will find that the Canadian press is extremely reluctant uh, to report on that until absolutely the last minute. A, a friend of both of ours in the past year, um, member of parliament, got into um, some difficulties in that way. And not until it became a police matter because of the abuse of that person's private media account by foreign actors did it become any kind of national subject, even though every reporter knew it. So I, I think, you know, it's a balance that information like the fact that a protest in Arctic weather is not really a pro protest in Arctic weather is being withheld. But some cruelties are also not done. And Justin Trudeau benefited from that. And so do other politicians. I, I think it's generally easier for liberal politicians than for conservative. But they're not as tough on conservative politicians as would be the case in the United States either. You had a great line about this that I quote a lot, that um, Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Conservative Party, was caught up in a, in a scandal that was like a Saturday Night Live parody of a Canadian political scandal. The Saskatchewan Insurance Act scandal. Right. 
as I think it was your line that if you can get Saskatchewan insurance and accreditation all into the same scandal, that <laughs> yeah. that is a trifecta of Canadian scandal. And just to update listeners who may not have heard about this this white hot political scandal, it involved the question of whether Andrew Shear had been a properly accredited insurance agent under applicable provincial regulations before he became a politician. Right. If you Google that, you will get literally tens of hits on this epic Canadian scandal. You you can't just you can't just have a man selling insurance who's completed only one That's, of the four proper courses to sell insurance. You have to complete all four. And to be fair to be fair to Shear, I think he actually did pass the exams. Uh, but he didn't show up for the interviewer. It was anyway. <laughs> I, I I call this an example of something that I, that I really do love about Canada. Canada, I, I think, suffers for, as compared to any other developed country, a crisis of national problem shortage. Um, other countries have way more problems than they can cope with. Canada does not generate enough problems. Uh, to meet demand. And so it has to manufacture uh, artificial problems. Yeah, that, that would definitely be in that category. Let me ask you a larger question about the Liberal Party of Canada. I think you once wrote a column in which you compared the Liberals under Jean Chrétien, so this is going back 15 or 20 years, you compared them to other parties that are essentially agglomerations of interests. I think you compared them to the Congress Party in India, uh, to a certain extent, to the Democrats, yeah. where it didn't have any fixed ideology, but it had it was sort of an umbrella group for various interests. Do you think, to the extent that description was applicable to the liberals under Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin, again, I'm dating myself here, but do you think the Liberal Party still has that character? I think Justin Trudeau has tried to flavor it with more urban progressivism, but, but I think, yes, it still does. And the serious scandal that the government got into is, is an example of this. The non-Canadian listeners may, again, can Google a scandal called SNC-Lavalin. Which so we were laughing before about the Sheer Insurance Act scandal. The scandal you're about to describe, this is a real deal. It's a real one, yeah. So SNC-Lavalin is a big engineering company. They get a lot of contracts abroad. They, get them, they got them in particular in Qaddafi's Libya. Um, and they paid bribes in order to get them, which is, of course, illegal in Canada as it is in all other developed countries. SNC-Lavalin is based in Quebec, which is a province where the liberals have special sensitivities. And as the criminal prosecution of Lavalin went forward, uh, Justin Trudeau intervened uh, very aggressively to try to protect the company. Ostensibly, he said, to protect jobs, which would be bad if that were true, but that was clearly not true, that the real reason was to protect the powerful executives who were his friends and his donors. Not just his friends and his donors in the presence, but because SNC-Lavalin had historically offered comfortable retirement births to people who were in government at the time, the people around him were looking forward to generous futures with SNC-Lavalin. If it ceased to exist, um, so would their retirement. And he intervened pretty blatantly, ultimately unsuccessfully, to protect the company, but it was not as crass and brutal as what Donald Trump was doing with Attorney General Sessions, not as grossly personally self-interested as Donald Trump, but definitely in that family misconduct. And that became a, a huge, huge issue. Now, that's something that woke urban progressive parties typically don't do. I, I can't imagine Elizabeth Warren doing that um, because woke urban progressivism has a kind of good government moralism usually attached. But the liberals join their woke urban progressivism to very traditional Christian Democrat, Italian Christian Democrat, Indian Com Congress Party type corruption, not bribe taking but favoritism to 
politically connected industries. That's been true of the Liberal Party forever, and under Justin Trudeau, it continued to be true of the Liberal Party. So you essentially got a mashup of woke progressive messaging with at least some elements of the old pork barreling from the Chrétien years. Yeah, pork barreling is not quite right because, look, all successful parties do pork barreling. Pork barreling means looking after your voters. The liberals had a special, they had a kind of fusion of party interests that were not for the voters. And SNC-Lavalin was not about, was not about the voters. It was, it was about the party's elites. And it, it was as much a case of a company capturing a party as it was of a party directing benefits outside the government to the people. I'd like to talk a little bit about the foreign media coverage of this election campaign. During the Harper years, there was the sense that Canada had become a real hot commodity. There was a lot more and more positive coverage about Canada. And also during this election cycle, I noticed the New York Times, uh, your publication, uh, The Atlantic, Foreign Policy magazine, The Guardian in UK, there was a lot of interest in the election in the form of opinion pieces. I'm wondering if that was mirrored by real grassroots interest in the political class, or if this was just a media phenomenon, people writing 1,500-word pieces about the posturing of Justin Trudeau. Well, I I think two things came together, maybe three. Uh, The the first is that because of the growth of the Canadian population and the Canadian economy, Canada is just objectively a more important factor in the world today than it was in, say, 1985. You know, it's a major economy. It's a country you know, at, at the 40 million population mark. It's certainly as a, it's a bigger economy than Spain. I believe it's a bigger economy than Italy, and soon it's going to be, you know, in, in the neighborhood of France. So that that's an objective fact that explains. I think second that there is a compensatory bias that countries that have been targets of Donald Trump's special dislike get special favorable attention in the American media. And so there's more attention to Germany, there's more attention to Canada. And then finally, there's the personal factor of of Justin Trudeau. He's so good looking, he's so glamorous, he became a kind of global progressive icon. And I think there was some feeling also, a little shamefacedness, that the media got a little um, too in his pocket in 2015, 2014. I remember he was the subject of a, um, what, a joke at Barack Obama's last White House Correspondence Center that Barack Obama put up some pictures of how badly he had aged as, as president. And then he said, you know, I, I hear voices saying, get off the stage already, old man. Your time has passed. Um, you're, you know, you're showing your age. And I say to those voices, pipe down, Justin. <laughs> That's actually pretty funny. We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which will resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to 
betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. One thing that has distinguished George W. Bush and Barack Obama is for the most part, I think they've comported themselves in a very gentlemanly fashion in their post-presidential capacity. Do you think it was improper for Barack Obama to publicly say that he was behind Justin Trudeau and supported his bid for re-election? I, I very much do think it's, it's improper, very substantially improper. Now, you can't make an absolute rule about ex-presidents doing such things. Governments always have preferences. I mean, it was no secret that the French and German governments hoped that in 2004, George W. Bush would lose and that John Kerry would win. No secret that Barack Obama wanted to see Netanyahu lose and a coalition of the Israeli left win. Uh, that's And sometimes heads of government are unwise enough or feel immune enough actually to say that out loud. That's a matter of national policy. Ex-leaders tend not to do that. And for for good reason. I mean, it just, uh, it it is mucking around where across national lines and in the current context where Americans are so sensitive to the manipulation of their politics by Russian and other Russian-backed extremist actors. That when Obama did that, he snatched the words out of a lot of people's mouths. I mean, there's obviously a, a huge difference between what he did and the clandestine interference of the Russians. But those of us who are on that battlefield every day have to deal with non-good faith actors. That it, the people we're arguing with, you know, the Fox News types, they don't care that it's true or that there are really important distinctions between what uh, Obama did and what Putin is doing. They will seize on anything. As you and I speak, just in the past 24 hours. Donald Trump's government opposed, and the Senate will now squash a House bet bill that would require any American campaign that had contact with a foreign entity to report that contact to the FEC and the FBI within seven days. That's different from what Obama did, of course, but it's a little harder now to make that case, thanks to Obama, than it was if he had kept his mouth shut. Let me ask you about Andrew Scheer, who is the leader of the Conservatives, the opposition in Canada, at least for now. To some extent, he was like an anti-Trump. There's this video that made the rounds during the election campaign. Some of his supporters were were screaming, lock him up, in reference to Justin Trudeau, which of course echoes notorious mob cheers that appeared many times at Donald Trump rallies. And Scheer, in, I thought, very admirable Canadian fashion, got them to change the chant to vote him out, yeah. which is very Canadian, but I also actually think it's substantively just the right thing to do, and it made for nice earned media for sheer. But overall, he wasn't as combative as maybe some conservative partisans would have liked. Do you think, from your perch in Washington, that Andrew Scheer ran a good campaign? Andrew Scheer had a very good election. Um, that 34.5% of the vote he got, which is low by historic, you know, when, when the days in Canada was a three-party system, um, it's pretty good uh, in a five-party system. He, and he won the popular vote, it should be said. Right. He won, right. uh, I think, at least one percentage point more than the Liberals. Right. Now, in Canada, that is, and that's, of course, not a legal fact. And in Canada, it isn't even a moral fact, because in Westminster systems, it's always possible to pile up big majorities and a few seats and, and then not. So it's not, a, it's not a legal fact. It's not a moral fact. But it's, it's a political fact. It's interesting. It tells you how he did. And he did pretty well. Um, I, I would criticize him in, in two ways. Um, and I, I, this is in the context of a generally positive, I think he ran a successful campaign. Um, 
I think incidents like that are exactly right. I think one of the things you do in a campaign is not just try, try to give your supporters, your core supporters, a good time and get them revved up, but actually to win over people who are doubtful about you and then to set yourself up for ex- successful governing because the way you campaign really does influence your ability to govern. But I think the con- Canadian Conservatives have to make up their minds about, about two things. One will be easy, one more hard. The easy thing is they just have to make up their mind that social conservatism on sex and gender issues is not viable in Canada. And the social teaching of the Catholic Church, whatever its merits, demerits, is not politically viable in Canada. Canadians have deeply internalized full equality for gay people, and they have deeply internalized a a very private person approach to the abortion question. And if you're offside on those two issues, you're just not going to be nationally competitive, especially the gay rights issue. I mean, I spend a lot of time in a very quiet village in rural Ontario, population 1700. And there was an, this, an anti-gay sermon at one of the local churches. And 48 hours later, there are um, rainbow flags on every grocery store, every building. If that's true in Prince Edward County, Ontario, I can only imagine how it is in Calgary, Alberta and other urban centers. So Sheer tried to walk a line on that. I think he has to stop walking the line. I think conservatives have to be committed. Not only do we speak about gay equality, we've got half a dozen uh, gay MPs running. The other task that will be harder is climate change is real, climate change is dangerous, and climate change has become a voting issue for urban people everywhere, even in Alberta, but certainly in Ontario. And the Conservatives have to be competitive. And I think Justin Trudeau's polling showed that this issue was the thing that buoyed him up against his scandal. So when he gave his acceptance speech, Justin Trudeau, the second sentence out of his mouth, the first was about overcoming division and hate, which is what Justin Trudeau calls any criticism of him. So that's reflected the bad thing. But the second thing he said was the Canadians have voted for act strong action on climate change. And they didn't exactly. He only got 33% of the vote. But I think without the climate change issue, he would have had 32% of the vote and be unemployed right now or on his way to unemployment. That uh, it was really crucial. And I think the conservatives have to step up. All center-right parties have to step up and have a policy on this. And I have you know, my own ideas about what that policy should be. You don't have to listen to me. You have to have something. This is a true global crisis, and voters, especially younger voters, especially urban voters, feel it, believe it, and demand action. Though one of the ironies of that issue is that even people who voted for left-of-center parties in this election, when asked specifically about carbon tax, I think a majority of them opposed it. So even among left-wing voters, there is a certain hypocrisy at play here. The job of the voters is to identify problems. The job of politicians is to compete to solve those problems. Obviously, if you say to people, would you like to pay more for gasoline? Nobody likes it. There are very few people in favor of a carbon tax as me. I don't like it. I'd I'd rather not. I I wish the physics didn't work that way, but they do. So what political leadership does is says, are you concerned that the Arctic is melting? Are you concerned about flooding in the city of Montreal? Are you concerned about possibility of migration flows of tens or even hundreds of millions of people from south to north? If those things worry you and they are starting, here are some of the things we can do to mitigate that problem. The red party stands for this menu of choices. The blue party stands for that menu of choices. The orange party stands for this other one. You pick. You know, you're the ultimate boss. But we're not going to ask you what should you do because this is a highly complex engineering and economic decision. And it's not fair to ask people who have families, lives to run of their own to bone up on policy expertise. One of the most interesting articles that you wrote about American politics which I think anticipated a large amount of the Trump phenomenon, 
you wrote a very substantial piece for Atlantic Magazine about the issue of immigration and how establishment Republicans had repeatedly tried to either sweep it under the carpet or dismiss people who had concerns about it as bigots, and that Trump had not so much invented this issue, but really had exploited it, but it it had always been there. Yes. In Canada, there are people who have concerns about immigration, but it seemed, and maybe you'll tell me if you agree with this, in this election cycle, it felt like we still haven't reached the moment when we're allowed to talk about those concerns. Immigration is less a boiling point issue in Canada than in other countries. It's, it's not a question of, of whether or not people have permission to speak about the immigration issue. I, the immigration issue is genuinely less intense in Canada because of some Canadian successes. And the task for political leadership in Canada is to capitalize and, and fortify those successes while avoiding the dangers that other countries experience, which can affect not only your immigration policy, but destabilize all of your politics. But here's what Canada has done right. The very first thing is partly because of geography. Canada does not have a severe illegal immigration problem. And until Justin Trudeau sent that tweet, it didn't have a severe, unauthorized asylum-seeking problem. Just a point here, there's a difference in asylum seekers and refugees. Refugees are people who are dis- already displaced in their country of origin. Uh, there's been a war, there's been an ecological disaster, and there they are. They're in a, a camp away from their home, uh, the Canada living, and they need help. And then governments will pick certain numbers of, of refugees and move them from the place where they are to another place. Asylum seekers are people who show up on your doorstep, and there's no international component to it, there's no legal component, and, and there's a lot of doubt, by the way, about exactly who they are and why they're, they're coming. So Canada has generally been pretty effective at imposing authority at its border. And one of the things that makes the immigration issue hot up is when people feel that the state is not in control of the migration, that they don't have a voice, that illegal immigration into the United States, the asylum seekers showing up in Germany, um, the uh, cross-channel migration into the UK, the agreement within the European Union that anybody anywhere in Europe can move to London, the hottest job market, or as it used to be the hottest job market in Europe and show up there, that, that feeling of take back control. So that's a powerful message. And I think Canadians genuinely and correctly feel that on the immigration issue, their government has control. It lost it a little bit in 2017 and 2018 at New York-Quebec border, and that became a voting issue. But most of the time, the Canadian government is in control. And so the immigration Canada gets, and it's substantial, is immigration that Canadians have chosen. That's one way to lower the fever. The second way to lower the fever is Canada gets immigration from lots and lots of different places. That means you do not get you get some linguistic ghettos in parts of Toronto where everyone is speaking certain forms of Chinese. Uh, there's certain parts of Toronto where people, everyone is speaking some other form of language. But I think everyone, you go to the mall and realize that the young man who lives in that all Chinese neighborhood, when he wants to chat up a girl from a different neighborhood, uh, he's going to have to speak English. You know, nothing is more common than to go to a Canadian shopping mall and see young men and young women from different cultural communities interacting in the way young people do if the world's to keep being people. Um, and they have to speak English, or in Quebec, maybe French. And so that's been a powerful thing. The Canadians can see the melting pot bubbling away, and they know they're going to have a common national identity and that their their culture isn't going to be replaced immigration. And, and, and the last thing that Canada's done right is the immigrants candidates are by and large better educated. And the reason that that is so important is the way immigration works, the reason it's good for your economy, it works by accelerating. It makes your economy bigger because you have more people, but the way it makes you richer, not just bigger, is it accelerate 
productive exchange of the kind that Adam Smith described. It accelerates specialization. The immigrants move into certain job categories. They displace natives out of those job categories. The natives upskill and specialize. And it's a disruptive process, but it makes you richer. But here's the, the thing, and this is a big difference in Canada on the one hand, the United States and the UK on the other. If you take in lots of unskilled immigrants, the displacement happens at the bottom of the economy and prices fall, wages fall in those sectors. That improves the purchasing power of richer people as compared to poor people. At a time when you're moving toward greater inequality, uh, unskilled immigration is a driver of inequality. But if you're taking people at the top, you're taking lots of you know, accountants and doctors, that same process happens at the top of the society. You drive down prices and wages in skilled occupations, and then it becomes a pro-equality force. And so I think Canadians generally experience cheaper medical services than they otherwise would have because of immigration. And that reconciles people. Maybe I don't love that the face of my country is changing, but I sure do love it that I have a qualified doctor here in Nipissing that I otherwise wouldn't have. Anti-Americanism used to be the binding force for the intellectual class in Canada. I think that has changed in the last decade or so as Canadians have been swept up in larger international culture wars, especially in regard to the United States. And so now among Canadians, you see less anti-Americanism per se. What you often will see is anti-Republicanism or anti-Trumpism. Do you think that's been a healthy phenomenon, at least to the extent that you don't have the monolithic bigotry that used to be common currency on the CBC and in the Toronto Star and the other left-of-center press, where it really was a sort of crass anti-Americanism. Now, at least, it's a little bit more ideologically nuanced, where you have Canadians expressing concerns about Donald Trump more specifically. Do you think that's a sign of maturity in Canada's political evolution? That's such an interesting point. I haven't really thought about that. On this, I don't feel as close to it as you one thing that you said that strongly resonates is the anti-Trump feeling in Canada is obviously very strong. And as part of that national problem shortage uh, that I mentioned earlier, there keeps being this demand to find Canadian politicians and plug them into that same slot that the AFD occupy in Germany, um, that the National Front occupy in France. And it's very frustrating for Canadians that, that that slot is largely unoccupied. And so Canadians keep trying to identify, people of the left keep trying to identify Canadian politicians to fill the slot. And and the results are anywhere from pretty inaccurate. Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, who's got some populist tendency, some Trumpy tendency, some problems with the truth, that kind of thing. I mean, it's not right, but it's not wholly wrong. And sometimes it verges on the completely ludicrous, like when it's, they try to make Jason Kenney the current Premier of Alberta, or Andrew Scheer, the leader of the Federal Conservative Party, <laughs> to try to make them out to the, be the Donald Trumps of Canada. This is a terrible affliction. If you don't have it, don't go away. <laughs> If you don't have it, be grateful you don't have it. And actually, if your center-right parties have been uniquely resistant to this disease, don't complain. Be grateful. That's, that's what success looks like. It's a very odd sort of thing, I think, for somebody who comes from the United States to see a federal election campaign where you have a candidate for prime minister, an incumbent, essentially campaigning against the premier's of the most economically important provinces. Is there any analogy for this in the United States? No, what Justin Trudeau was doing was a very classic political move, which is if you're an incumbent with not a great record, you try to make the issue the opposition. Donald Trump will try to do that in 2020. 
it almost never works. Sometimes it works. It worked for George W. Bush in 2004. That was a tough reelect, given the objective facts of the matter. He probably should have lost. Well, he had John Kerry. That's quite a gift. That right. He was able to make John Kerry the issue. But normally when you try to do that, you fail. Donald Trump will try to do it in 2020. He will fail. And Justin Trudeau tried to do it. Trudeau's problem was that he wanted to run a Trump campaign against Andrew Scheer, the federal leader. And that was so obviously ludicrous that he then began hunting. Well, who can, who can fill the Trump role? And Doug Ford has kind of some Trumpy mannerisms. But this, this is where you bump into the strength of the Canadian state. Uh, as Justin Trudeau discovered when he tried to interfere in SNC-Lavalin, it is much harder to politicize Canadian law enforcement than it is to politicize American law enforcement because you've got a very thin layer of political appointees in any Canadian government, and then you hit the hard rock of civil service beneath them. And while that can be frustrating if you're trying to make authentic policy change, because the civil service always wants to keep doing what it has been doing, and it's hard to make them change, and you lack enough political people to drive change, it makes it also very hard to corrupt because the civil service people are that seem prime ministers before you, they still see prime ministers after you, they're not going to break the law for yourself. That's a very interesting observation, and certainly true in the case of SNC-Lavalin, because we won't delve into the details, but a, a lot of it surrounded the fact that Justin Trudeau, he ended up dismissing his own justice minister and attorney general, who was a woman and indigenous. But below that, as you say, you very quickly hit career civil servants who were extremely sympathetic figures, their correspondence showed that they were fulfilling their duties in a very professional way. And there were very few equivalents to the kind of cameo actors that you see in the equivalent American scandals, where there's all kinds of folks who were brought in a couple of months ago because they were related to donors or whatnot. There were almost none of those characters, which made it a more cut-and-dried drama, which pitted a core of career civil servants and somebody who was operating under what seemed to be crass political interests. Uh, whereas in the United States, there's just more characters, maybe on both sides, who would seem not to have the best interests of the country uh, at heart. Right. Why is that? Why is there a higher percentage of political appointees larding up the U.S. system? Because the United States is one of the older constitutional forms in the democratic world. It, it remains what the U.K. was in the 19th century and stopped being about 1910, what you might call a party state, that many of the functions that are done by these capital S state in other democracies are done by political parties in the United States. The most dramatic example is, and the most sort of breathtakingly shocking, is that after the census every 10 years, there's redistricting. And every first past the post, every Westminster system does this. We have, you have a census of 10-year intervals, and you redraw the boundary. And in Canada, in Australia, and Britain, there's obviously politics in that system. But the, the work is done by judges, by professional, by commissions, by boundary commissioners who are the parties may pick the boundary commissioners or have some say over who the boundary commissioners are, but they go off into a room and they produce a map and they have independent criteria. The whole thing is reviewable by courts. So you get boundaries that are more or less fair. You can have weird outcomes like in Canada in 2019, uh, where you get the most votes and don't get the most seats. But everyone understands that that's, that's not malicious. That's just that reflects the difficulty of drawing these maps. Uh, in the United States, you have a census and state party politicians draw boundaries for both themselves and then at the federal level for crass party reasons. And this went to the Supreme Court just this year. And the Supreme Court said, so long as you're not doing it for racial bigotry, but just to favor one party over another, go ahead. You have permission. And so you get situations where politicians in a state like Wisconsin 
will draw borders so that the Republican Party can get 45% of the vote and 65% of the seats in the Wisconsin state legislature. That just doesn't happen anywhere else. And that's a vestige. I mean, that happened in Britain in the 19th century, but that wouldn't happen now. It doesn't happen in Canada or Australia. Uh, the American system is in many ways fossilized in 19th century ways. So parties have roles, and, and the result is the civil service is more stunted in the United States. Because this used to be an explosive issue in American politics. The United States tried and failed in the 18th century to develop the civil service. And beginning of the 1830s, there was a strong view that the party should pick everything, down to the couriers who ran messages in state assemblies. And people marvel at high voter turnout in American elections in the 1880s and say, we need to get back that civic spirit. What they don't understand is the reason people turned out was every family had somebody who would lose a job if the other party won the election. <laughs> you know, you know, Uncle Uncle Bertram, who stoked the coal in, in City Hall, if the wrong party won, would lose his job stoking coal and have the coal-stoking job replaced by somebody from the other party. So, yeah, of course, you turn up to vote. Beginning in the 1880s, the United States, bit by bit, at the federal level and then at the state level, began replacing, saying, okay, the coal stoker will be um, a career appointee. And they worked their way up through the bureaucracy, but it was an extremely gradual process and still large chunks of the government are part of it. And the most stark example of this is, I've got given maybe too long a story of the American civil service. Uh, in, Canada, in Canada, in Australia, in Britain, in Germany, the police ultimately report to, sorry, prosecutors ultimately report to a director of public prosecutions. That, that's not always the name of the job, but that, that's some, something like that. A director of public prosecutions is a career civil servant. The justice minister, the prime minister, the president, they sign that person's papers, but that person is produced by the internal system, and they hold their job for a fixed period. In Germany, it's five years, and I forget how long it is in Britain. And that person decides who gets prosecuted and who not. And if the German chancellor were to say to the director of public prosecutions, I think you should prosecute so-and-so and not prosecute so-and-so, they'd prosecute the German chancellor. Well, the, the equivalent of that person in the United States is the assistant attorney general for the criminal position. And that person is absolutely a, a political appointee and often a blatantly political appointee. President Trump's assistant attorney general for the criminal division is a total bozo. So when you see and hear things like saying, well, they, you know, the Department of Justice decided not to prosecute this offense by some Trumpy person, that's not done by some non-party, some independent, respected civil servant. That is done by a hack. Well, I'm going to have to uh, beep out the word bozo because this is a family podcast. <laughs> and of course, it's it's led to the idiom in the English language where somebody says, uh, well, he couldn't be elected dog catcher. The origin of that is that dog catchers at one point were elected. And I think there's might be a few obscure parts of the United States where they still are. Uh, not in Canada, though. At the state level, in many, many states, judges are elected which is appalling. People from other countries, that's just one of the weirdest parts of the American system. It's appalling, too, and the lawyers who argue in front of those judges make political contributions to fund their campaigns. You recently came to Toronto for the same reason you often come. You came for a speaking engagement. I know you come back to Canada frequently. When you do come back, what are some of the main things that surprise you, not just politically, but in terms of the evolution of Canada socially and economically? Since you do come back episodically, you keep getting new snapshots of the country, and maybe you see things that the rest of us take for granted. What are some of the surprises? That is such a great question. It's something I think about a lot. When I'm in Toronto, I feel like I'm in an Edith Wharton novel. Edith Wharton was a writer who, born in New York City in 1870, uh, came of age in the 1890s and moved to France and wrote about, in the 1920s, would write about the New York of the 1890s. The Gilded Age was her backdrop. Right, the House of... And what she was always describing was this provincial 
city with its rows of, of brown houses that had somehow mutated into this great world capital. And I, I feel that way. Like the, the thing that strikes me most often is when I'm in the very downtown core, the very center of the condo complex. I'll have these moments where I was born in Toronto in 1960. I grew up there. I, I know the city intimately. I don't know where I am. I don't recognize this street. And every building on it that I was familiar with is gone, and it's replaced by these zooming glass towers. And I don't say that in any kind of way of nostalgia, because it was never a beautiful city, and it was kind of dowdy, and now it's exciting and glamorous, and there are people from Dubai racing Lamborghinis down the road, and that's kind of exciting. But it has mutated from being a very provincial place to being this world capital. And, and that has, even in the past 10 years, that is a notable, notable change. I don't regret any of these changes, but I do find them a, a little difficult to cope with. Thank you so much. I'll let you go. I myself have a Lamborghini race to attend. <laughs> I feel like my, my Honda minivan will be a little outmatched, but never say die. Thank you so much for being with us on the Quillette Podcast. Bye-bye. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.